Chapter Fourteen, Part One of How I Found Livingstone. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. How I Found Livingstone: Travels, Adventures, and Discoveries in Central Africa, Including Four Months' Residence with Doctor Livingstone, by Sir Henry M. Stanley. Chapter Fourteen, Part One: Our Journey from Ujiji to Unyanyembe. We felt quite at home when we sat down on our black bearskin, gay Persian carpet, and clean new mats, to rest with our backs to the wall, sipping our tea with the air of comfortable men, and chat over the incidents of the picnic, as Livingstone persisted in calling our journey to the Rusizi. It seemed as if old times, which we loved to recall, had come back again, though our house was humble enough in its aspect, and our servants were only naked barbarians, but it was near this house that I had met him, Livingstone, after that eventful march from Unyanyembe. It was on this same veranda that I listened to that wonderful story of his about those far, enchanting regions west of the lake Tanganyika. It was in this same spot that I first became acquainted with him, and ever since my admiration has been growing for him, and I feel elated when he informs me that he must go to Unyanyembe under my escort and at my expense. The old mud walls and the bare rafters and the ancient thatched roof and this queer-looking old veranda will have an historical interest for me while I live, and so, while I can, I have taken pains and immortalized the humble old building by a sketch. I have just said that my admiration for Livingstone has been growing. This is true, the man that I was about to interview so calmly and complacently, as I would interview any prominent man with the view of specially delineating his nature, or detailing his opinions, has conquered me. I had intended to interview him, report in detail what he said, picture his life and his figure, then bow him in my au revoir and march back. That he was specially disagreeable and brusque in his manner, which would make me quarrel with him immediately, was firmly fixed in my mind. But Livingstone, true, noble, Christian, generous-hearted, frank man, acted like a hero, invited me to his house, said he was glad to see me, and got well on purpose to prove the truth of his statement, You have brought new life unto me, and, when I fell sick with the remittent fever, hovering between life and death, he attended me like a father, and we have now been together for more than a month. Can you wonder, then, that I like this man, whose face is the reflex of his nature, whose heart is essentially all goodness, whose aims are so high, that I break out impetuously sometimes, but your family, doctor, they would like to see you, oh, so much. Let me tempt you to come home with me. I promise to carry you every foot of the way to the coast. You shall have the finest donkey to ride that is in Unyanyembe. Your wants, you have but to hint them, and they shall be satisfied." Let the sources of the Nile go. Do you come home and rest, then, after a year's rest and restored health, you can return and finish what you have to do. But ever the answer was, No, I should like to see my family very much indeed. My children's letters affect me intensely, but I must not go home. I must finish my task. It is only the want of supplies that has detained me. I should have finished the discovery of the Nile by this, by tracing to its connection with either Baker's Lake or Petherick's branch of the Nile. If I had only gone one month further, I could have said, The work is done. 
Some of these men who had turned the doctor back from his interesting discoveries were yet in Ujiji, and had the government Enfield rifles in their hands, which they intended to retain until their wages had been paid to them, but as they had received sixty dollars advance each at Zanzibar from the English consul, with the understanding entered into by contract that they should follow their master wherever he required them to go, and as they had not only gone where they were required to proceed with him, but had baffled and thwarted him, it was preposterous that a few men should triumph over the doctor, by keeping the arms given to him by the Bombay government. I had listened to the Arab sheikhs, friends of the doctor, advising them in mild tones to give them up. I had witnessed the mutineer's stubbornness, and it was then, on the Burzani of Said bin Majid's house, that I took advantage to open my mind on the subject, not only for the benefit of the stubborn slaves, but also for the benefit of the Arabs, and to tell them that it was well that I had found Livingston alive, for if they had but injured a hair of his head, I should have gone back to the coast, to return with a party which would enable me to avenge him. I had been waiting to see Livingston's guns return to him every day, hoping that I should not have to use force, but when a month or more had elapsed, and still the arms had not been returned, I applied for permission to take them, which was granted. Susie, the gallant servant of Dr. Livingston, was immediately dispatched with about a dozen armed men to recover them, and in a few minutes we had possession of them without further trouble. The doctor had resolved to accompany me to Unyanyembe, in order to meet his stores, which had been forwarded from Zanzibar, November 1, 1870. As I had charge of the escort, it was my duty to study well the several routes to Unyanyembe from Ujiji. I was sufficiently aware of the difficulties and the responsibilities attached to me while escorting such a man. Besides, my own personal feelings were involved in the case. If Livingston came to any harm through any indiscretion of mine while he was with me, it would immediately be said, Ah, had he not accompanied Stanley, he would have been alive now. I took out my chart, the one I had made myself, in which I had perfect faith, and I sketched out a route which would enable us to reach Unyanyembe without paying a single cloth as tribute, and without encountering any worse thing than a jungle, by which we could avoid all the Wavinza and the plundering Waha. This peaceable, secure route led by water south along the coast of Yukaranga and Yukawendi to Cape Tongwa. Arriving at Cape Tongwa, I should be opposite the village of Itaga, Sultan Imrera, in the district of Rusawa of Yukawende, after which we should strike my old road, which I had traversed from Unyanyembe, when bound for Ujiji. I explained it to the doctor, and he instantly recognized its feasibility and security, and if I struck Imrera, as I proposed to do, it would demonstrate whether my chart was correct or not. We arrived at Ujiji from our tour of discovery, north of the Tanganyika, December 13th, and from this date the doctor commenced writing his letters to his numerous friends, and a copy into his mammoth Let's Diary, from his field-books, the valuable information he had acquired during his years of travel south and west of the Tanganyika. I sketched him while sitting in his shirt-sleeves in the veranda, with his Let's Diary on his knee, and the likeness on the frontispiece is an admirable portrait of him, because the artist who has assisted me has, with an intuitive eye, seen the defects in my own sketch, and by this I am enabled to restore him to the reader's view exactly as I saw him, as he pondered on what he had witnessed during his long marches.
Soon after my arrival at Ujiji, he had rushed to his paper, and indebted a letter to James Gordon Bennett, Esquire, wherein he recorded his thanks, and after he had finished it, I asked him to add the word junior to it, as it was young Mr. Bennett to whom he was indebted. I thought the letter admirable, and requested the doctor not to add another word to it. The feelings of his heart had found expression in the grateful words he had written, and if I judged Mr. Bennett rightly, I knew he would be satisfied with it. For it was not the geographical news he cared so much about, as the grand fact of Livingston's being alive or dead. In this latter part of December he was writing letters to his children, Sir Roderick Murchison, and to Lord Granville. He had intended to have written to the Earl of Clarendon, but it was my sad task to inform him of the death of that distinguished nobleman. In the meantime I was preparing the expedition for its return march to Unyanyembe, apportioning the bales and luggage, the doctor's large tin boxes, and my own among my men, for I had resolved upon permitting the doctor's men to march as passengers, because they had so nobly performed their duty to their master. Said bin Majid had left, December 12th, for Mirambo's country, so to give the black Bonaparte battle for the murder of his son Saud in the forest of Wilyankura, and he had taken with him three hundred stout fellows, armed with guns, from Ujiji. The stout-hearted old chief was burning with rage and resentment, and a fine warlock figure he made with his seven-foot gun. Before we departed for the Ruzizi, I had wished him bon voyage, and expressed a hope that he would rid the Central African world of the tyrant Mirambo. On the 20th of December the rainy season was ushered in with heavy rain, thunder, lightning, and hail, the thermometer falling to 66 degrees Fahrenheit. The evening of this day I was attacked with urticaria, or nettle-rash, for the third time since arriving in Africa, and I suffered a woeful sickness, and it was the forerunner of an attack of remittent fever, which lasted four days. This is the malignant type, which has proved so fatal to so many African travellers on the Zambezi, the White Nile, the Congo, and the Niger. The head throbs, the pulse is bound, the heart struggles painfully, while the sufferer's thoughts are in a strange world, such as only a sick man's fancy can create. This was the fourth attack of the fever since the day I met Livingston. The excitement of the march, and the high hope which my mind constantly nourished, had kept my body almost invincible against an attack of fever while advancing towards Ujiji, but two weeks after the great event had transpired my energies were relaxed, my mind was perfectly tranquil, and I became a victim. Christmas came, and the doctor and I had resolved upon the blessed and time-honored day being kept as we keep it in Anglo-Saxon lands, with a feast such as Ujiji could furnish us. The fever had quite gone from me the night before, and on Christmas morning, though exceedingly weak, I was up and dressed, and lecturing Faraji, the cook, upon the importance of this day to white men, and endeavouring to instil into the mind of the sleek and pampered animal some cunning secrets of the culinary art. Fat, broad-tailed sheep, goats, zaga and pombe, eggs, fresh milk, plantains, singwa, fine corn-flour, fish, onions, sweet potatoes, etc., were procured in the Ujiji market, and from good old Maoni Kerry. But alas, for my weakness! Faraji spoiled the roast, and our custard was burned. The dinner was a failure. That the fat-brained rascal escaped a thrashing was due only to my inability to lift my hands for punishment, but my looks were dreadful and alarming, 
and capable of annihilating any one except Faraji. The stupid, hard-headed cook only chuckled, and I believe he had the subsequent gratification of eating the pies, custards, and roast that his carelessness had spoiled for European palates. Saeed bin Majid, previous to his departure, had left orders that we should be permitted to use his canoe for our homeward trip, and Moni Kerry kindly lent his huge vessel for the same purpose. The expedition, now augmented by the doctor and his five servants, and their luggage, necessitated the employment of another canoe. We had our flocks of milch-goats and provision of fat sheep for the jungle of Ukawende, the transit of which I was about to attempt. Good Halima, Livingston's cook, had made ready a sackful of fine flour, such as she only could prepare in her fond devotion for her master. Hamoida, her husband, had also freely given his assistance and attention to this important article of food. I purchased a donkey for the doctor, the only one available in Ujiji, lest the doctor might happen to suffer on the long march from his ancient enemy. In short, we were luxuriously furnished with food, sheep, goats, cheese, cloth, donkeys, and canoes, sufficient to convey us a long distance. We needed nothing more. The 27th of December has arrived. It is the day of our departure from Ujiji. I was probably about to give an eternal farewell to the port whose name will forever be sacred in my memory. The canoes, great lumbering hollow trees, are laden with good things. The rowers are in their places. The flag of England is hoisted at the stern of the doctor's canoe. The flag of America waves and rustles joyously above mine, and I cannot look at them without feeling a certain pride that the two Anglo-Saxon nations are represented this day on this great inland sea, in the face of wild nature and barbarism. We are escorted to our boats by the great Arab merchants, by the admiring children of Unyamwezi, by the freemen of Zanzibar, by wandering Wahuga and Wajiji, by fierce Warunda, which are in this day quiet, even sorrowful, that the white men are going. Whither? they all ask. At eight a.m. we start, freely distributing our farewells as the Arabs and Quidnunks wave their hands. On the part of one or two of them there was an attempt to say something sentimental and affecting, especially by the convicted sinner Mohammed bin Sali, but though outwardly I manifested no disapprobation of his words, or of the emphatic way in which he shook my hand, I was not sorry to see the last of him, after his treachery to Livingston in 1869. I was earnestly requesting to convey to Unyanyembe Mengi Salams to everybody, but had I done so, as he evidently desired me to do, I would not have been surprised at being regarded by all as hopelessly imbecile. We pushed off from the clayey bank at the foot of the market-place, unencumbered with luggage, under the leadership of gigantic Asmani and Bombay, commenced their journey southward along the shores of the lake. We had arranged to meet them at the mouth of every river, to transport them across from bank to bank. The doctor, being in Saeed bin Majid's boat, which was a third or so shorter than the one under my command, took the lead, with the British flag held aloft by a bamboo, streaming behind like a crimson meteor. My boat, manned by Wajiji sailors, whom we had engaged to take the canoes back from Tongwa Cape to Ujiji Bunder, came astern, and had a much taller flagstaff, on which was hoisted the ever-beautiful stars and stripes. Its extreme height drew from the doctor, whose patriotism and loyalty had been excited, the remark that he would cut down the tallest palmyra for his flagstaff, 
as it was not fitting that the British flag should be so much lower than that of the United States. Our soldiers were not a whit behind us in light-heartedness at the thought of going to Unyanyembe. They struck up the exhilarating song of the Zanzibar boatmen, with the ecstatic chorus, Kinan de Kitunga, rowing away like madmen until they were compelled to rest from sheer exhaustion, while the perspiration exuded from the pores of their bodies in streams. When refreshed, they bent back to their oars, raising the song of the Mrima, O Mama, Redemikai, which soon impelled them to an extravagant effort again. It was by this series of ferocious spurts, racing, shouting, singing, perspiring, laughing, groaning, and puffing, that our people vented their joyous feelings, as the thought filled their minds that we were homeward bound, and that by the route I had adopted between us and Unyanyembe there was not the least danger. We have given the Waha the slip, ha-ha, the Wavinza will trouble us no more, ho-ho, the Mianvu can get no more cloth from us, hi-bye, and Kiala will see us no more, never more, he-he, they shouted with wild bursts of laughter, seconded by tremendous and rapid strokes with their oars, which caused the stiff old canoes to quiver from stem to stern. Our party ashore seemed to partake of our excitement, and joined in the wild refrain of the mad African song. We watched them urging their steps forward to keep pace with us, as we rounded the capes and points, and rowed across the bays whose margins were sedge and rush and weed. The tiny and agile Kalulu, little Balali, and Majwara were seen racing the herds of goats, sheep, and donkeys which belonged to the caravan, and the animals even seemed to share the general joy. Nature also, proud wild nature, with the lofty azure dome upheaved into infinity, with her breadth and depth of vivid greenness and enormous vastness on our left, with her immense sheet of bright glancing water, with her awful and intense serenity, she partook of and added to our joy. At about ten a.m. we arrived at Corindos, an old chief, noted for his singular kindness to Dr. Livingston, while he bore animosity to the Arabs. To the Arabs this was unaccountable. To the doctor it was plain. He had but spoken kind and sincere words, while all the Arabs spoke to him as if he were not even a man, least of all a chief. Corindos place is at the mouth of Luichi, which is very wide. The river oozes out through a forest of Eshanomene, pith-tree. This was a rendezvous agreed upon between shore and lake parties, that the canoes might all cross to the other side, distant a mile and a half. The mouth of the Luichi forms the bay of Yukaranga, so named because on the other side, whither we were about to cross our party, was situated the village of Yukaranga, a few hundred yards from the lake. All the baggage was taken out of the largest canoe, and stowed snugly in the smaller one, and a few select oarsmen, having taken seats, pushed off with the doctor on board, who was to superintend pitching the encampment at Yukaranga, while I remained behind to bind the fractious and ill-natured donkeys, and stow them away in the bottom of the larger canoe, that no danger of upsetting may be incurred, and a consequent gobbling up by hungry crocodiles, which were all about us, waiting their opportunity. The flock of goats were then embarked, and as many of our people as could be got in. About thirty still remained behind with myself, for whom my canoe was to return. We all arrived safe at Yukaranga, though we got dangerously near a herd of hippopotami. The crossing of the wide mouth, the Luiche being then in flood, was effected in about four hours. 
The next day, in the same order as on our departure from Ujiji, we pursued our way south, the lake party keeping as close as possible to the shore, yet when feasible, wind and weather permitting, we struck off boldly across the numerous small bays which indent the shores of the Tanganyika. The shores were beautifully green, the effect of the late rains. The waters of the lake were a faithful reflex of the blue firmament above. The hippopotami were plentiful. Those noticed on this day were colored with reddish rings round the base of their ears and on the neck. One monster, coming up rather late, was surprised by the canoe making full for him, and in great fright took a tremendous dive which sowed the whole length of his body. Halfway between the mouth of the Malagarazi and that of the Luiche, we saw a camp on shore, that of Mohammed bin Garib, a Maswahili, who figured often in Livingston's verbal narrative to me of his adventures and travels as one of the kindest and best of the Muslims in Central Africa. He appeared to me a kindly disposed man, with a face seldom seen, having the stamp of an unusual characteristic on it, that of sincerity. The vegetation of the shores as we proceeded was truly tropical. Each curve revealed new beauties. With the soft chalky stone, of which most of the cliffs and bluffs are made, seen as we neared the mouth of the Malagarazi, the surf has played strange freaks. We arrived at the mouth of the Malagarazi about 5 p.m., having rowed 18 miles from Yukaranga. The shore party arrived, very much fatigued, about 5 p.m. The next day was employed in crossing the caravan across the broad mouth of the Malagarazi to our camp, a couple of miles north of the river. This is a river which a civilized community would find of immense advantage for shortening the distance between the Tanganyika and the coast. Nearly one hundred miles might be performed by this river, which is deep enough at all seasons to allow navigation as far as Kiala, in Uvenza, whence a straight road might be easily made to Unyanyembe. Missionaries also might reap the same benefit from it for conversion tours to Uvinza, Uha, and Ugala. Pursuing our way on the 30th, and rounding the picturesque capes of Kagongo, Muviga, and Kavo, we came, after about three hours rowing, inside of villages at the mouth of the swift and turbid Rugofu. Here we again had to transport the caravan over the crocodile-infested mouth of the river. On the morning of the 31st we sent a canoe with men to search for food in two or three villages that were visible on the other side. Four Doti purchased just sufficient for four days for our caravan of forty-eight persons. We then got under way, having informed the Kirangozi that Irimba was our destination, and bidding him keep as closely as possible to the lake shore, where it was practicable, but if not, to make the best he could of it. From the debouchement of the Rugufu, the headwaters of which we had crossed on our random route to Ujiji, to Yurimba, a distance of six days by water, there are no villages, and consequently no food. The shore party, however, before leaving Ujiji, had eight days' rations, and on this morning four days, distributed to each person, and therefore was in no danger of starvation, should the mountain headlands, now unfolding, abrupt and steep, one after another, prevent them from communicating with us. It must be understood that such a journey as this had never been attempted before by any Arab or Muswahili, and every step taken was in sheer ignorance of where the road would lead the men ashore. Rounding Kivo's steep promontory, whose bearded ridge and rugged slope, wooded down to the water's edge, whose exquisite coves and quiet recesses might well have evoked a poetical effusion to one so inclined, 
we dared the chopping waves of Kivo's Bay, and stood direct for the next cape, Mizohazy, behind which, owing to wind and wave, we were compelled to halt for the night. End of chapter 14, part 1